Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering, back with all of you for another live edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. Uh, Rick, this weekend in Cincinnati uh, had the potential to be an all-time, really, Cincinnati weekend. And it had the potential for a lot of hope, and it had the potential to be a severe letdown weekend, looking especially at Saturday for Xavier and and, uh, Bengals fans. And Xavier goes out there at noon and kind of gives everybody a scare in the first half and then gets things done in the second half, cleans things up against Creighton. The Bengals go out there and hang on by the skin of their teeth at 430. And Saturday and Sunday and now Monday on uh, Martin Luther King Day, I don't know how many people are working today, but it uh, it's turned into quite a weekend here in the Queen City. So how's your weekend been and uh, what did you do to celebrate on Saturday? Well, I drove home from Pittsburgh. So I didn't do anything. Uh, oh, that's I was, right. I was calling basketball games. So I'm glad you guys all enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, I'm happy about the Bengals win, but let's talk some Xavier hoops. Yes. So the uh, first thing we got to start off with before we get to Creighton, obviously, it was a great way to end the week. Um, but I think we should probably start looking back um, at Villanova. We haven't recorded yep. since Hold the on, Villanova be- game. Before yeah, we do that, I do want to shout out. Uh, we're doing this live here. So we are yes. pushed it out to Twitter to Facebook, and to YouTube. If you're watching right now via Twitter, what we need you to do is to click over to YouTube. It's youtube.com backslash musketeer report or facebook.com backslash musketeer report. Either one of those two platforms will allow us to see your comments here in our system. We can put them up on the screen and then talk about whatever you guys want us to talk about. So just wanted to get that out of the way here at the beginning. If you're watching this on Twitter, switch over to Facebook or YouTube, please. And that way we can see your comments. Yeah, so Facebook, YouTube, Rick and I are both tweeting those out. Rick, you already did from the Musketeer Report page, and then uh, I will here in a second too. So, uh, and anybody that's listening to this later, I'm assuming Rick, you're gonna you're gonna take the audio of this and put it out um, yes. as in a podcast format. So, if you're listening to this, if it is uh, Tuesday afternoon and you're listening to this right now, we're gonna read off all the questions on the screen. A recording of this, if you want to watch it, will be available later on YouTube as well. Uh, but we'll read off all the questions so that way you're not confused about what you're listening to or what we're talking about. Um, and if you're watching, we'll keep the question just like the last time uh, right there at the bottom of the screen. So yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, just comment in, ask a question in, because um, none, like Rick said, none of the Twitter uh, comments or questions pop up um, unless we were to see them on the stream, which to keep up. But uh, anyway, Rick, let's uh, let's get started here with Villanova where... Uh, Xavier, I, I think you and I both talked about it last week, where Xavier coming off of that Villanova game in Philadelphia where you're winning, you collapse in the second half, and then you have such a long layoff, you you kill Butler at Hinkle, and it doesn't look like there's a lot of rust. It, it was, again, a tale of two halves in Cincinnati against Villanova, but this time it was a bad first half and a really good second half, and a second half in which you know, you defend like that, you shoot like that going forward, you're going to win a lot of games, especially against a team like that. There are no moral victories, especially against a team like Villanova. But if there is one good thing you're going to take away from a game like this, it's the fact that you were down 17 against Villanova and didn't completely mail it in and didn't completely fold. You came back and tied the game with about three minutes left, and Villanova just made the winning plays down the stretch. There's a lot to talk about, I think, especially getting into that final sequence of the game. But before we break it all down, uh, Rick, what were your general thoughts and kind of overall feeling of of that Villanova game last week? Yeah, I think your point's a good one that it felt like it was going to be one of those avalanche games for Xavier and Villanova, right? We've seen them multiple times before you get behind early by double figures and they just pour it on. It becomes a 20 or 30 point lead at some point. You just never have a chance to get back in it. Fortunately for Xavier, that really hasn't been the case as often over the last couple of years. They've usually been a little bit closer with Villanova, even though they've had trouble beating them. And this was another example of that. They played really well in the second half. But the big story to me was just that they couldn't make layups. I mean, they go, I think, whatever the stats said, they were like 7 for 17 or something on layups in the game. But that's always a little bit wonky in terms of what's deemed a layup and what's not. And sometimes you can have layups that are heavily challenged or or whatever at the rim. So those are tough. But by my count, I saw at least nine clean looks right at the rim that are, you know, you don't have to make every one of them. You don't expect a team to make every one of them, but you got to make more than half of them. I mean, they're very easy shots and Xavier just couldn't get any of those to go down in this game. Uh, It was 
That, to me, that was the biggest difference. Yeah, they played a bad first half. Yes, they had a really nice run in the second half. But if you get those layups throughout the game to go down, the first half doesn't look as bad. And the second half is a probably enough to get you over the hump and actually potentially win that game in your own building. So to me, that was really the biggest difference. Did you see anything in all of those missed layups as far as actions go or as far as guys getting the rim technique, anything? Was there anything consistent with the way they were taking those shots that you felt like they weren't getting them in? in it's tough to say even in rhythm when it's a layup, but did you see anything there that was just a, a missed layup or was there something else going on? I really didn't, Paul. And, and when you look at the Creighton game on uh, Saturday, you saw a lot of the same issues. They were missing shots around the rim. Now, Against Creighton, you had a shot blocker in Ryan Kalkbrenner who is who was changing the game and maybe impacting and causing guys to rush or whatever around the basket. But there's also this factor out there that, look, we don't want to use excuses, but if you're wondering where the layoff may have impacted this team, perhaps it's that. Maybe for whatever reason it just threw these guys a little bit out of their rhythm or maybe they're a little more tired than they normally are or something like that. I don't know what the case is, but it seems weird to me that coming off of that long layoff, Two games back-to-back, they just really struggled to make any shots right around the basket that were pretty much gimme. So I don't think it's a long-term problem. It's not something that like I want to spend a lot of time on, like how do they make layups better? Um, but it is something that they've got to fix. And I would assume that it's going to fix itself pretty quickly, and it was probably somewhat a result of the layoff. Yeah. And another thing, talking about their play around the rim, in that Villanova game, I was talking to Adam Baum about this at halftime, Villanova in that first half had 12 second chance points and were just really dominating Xavier on the glass. In the second half, Xavier has eight second chance points. Villanova didn't get a single one. It finished 12 to eight. And I thought that was a big reason why Xavier turned the game around was Villanova was just dominating Xavier down low. And then in the second half, when Xavier needed to make a run to get back into the game, they were able to hold Villanova off from getting those offensive rebounds to turn into points. And that was one at least little way why Xavier was able to make a run to get back in that game and eventually tie it up. Yeah, no, I I, mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, in terms of individual players, I thought one good sign was that Paul Scruggs played pretty well in this game and, and tried to lead Xavier back in the second half of that one and get him into it. Um, Villanova is a tough matchup for him. It always has been because of their physical guards that are kind of able to match against his strengths a little bit. And so I thought he played pretty well in this game, and, and that was a good sign for Xavier. Yeah, he did. He ended up uh, – he finished in that game 15 points, tied for the team lead. Nate Johnson also uh, – he had 15 points. But as a team, Xavier shot 33% uh, from the field, as you can see the the stats here on this. This is pretty nifty. Here, Rick is, is nifty. Is yeah, that, like that did we did we phase that word out or is that still? Can I still use that? You can use nifty. I'm fine with nifty. All right, all right. Well, nifty, uh, nifty is what we're doing here. If you're watching this to pull up uh, the stat broadcast feed, um, Xavier, you can see shot 33. I mean, both teams. Xavier 18 for 55. Villanova 20 for 53 from the field uh, from three point range. Xavier five for 24. Villanova four for 20. How often do you see Villanova go? you know, four for 20 from three against Xavier. That's not a number that you generally see. So for yeah, Xavier, that, I, I, go ahead. That's, that's really the shame of Xavier missing all those easy shots around the rim is this is the game where you should beat Villanova, right? Like this was the, you had them in your gym. They weren't making shots. They clearly weren't at their best. Gillespie, yeah, he leads them with 21 points, but he was seven of 20 from the field. That, that's not a good night, really. It's not an efficient night. So uh, yeah, I mean, that that's the shame of it all is that this was the opportunity to beat Villanova. Yeah, I, I said go ahead, and that's exactly what I was going to say, is that if you're looking for a recipe for success and you're, you're looking at this box score on the screen right now and I cover up the final score and I show you everything over there on the right side and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Xavier's, Xavier's in a really good spot to win this game. Six turnovers. Xavier, between Villanova and Butler, only had 12 turnovers in 80 minutes of basketball. Six turnovers in each game. That's an incredibly low number. And given what we've seen out of Xavier in the first uh, you know, two months of the season, that's huge to be able to keep that number that low, especially, again, against Villanova. Now, the, the, the difference, you know, when you're looking at that is, like, where else does Xavier take advantage of, of this box score? And looking down the line, it, it felt pretty even, but... 
you know, Villanova goes 20 for 21 from the line. And, and in the end, you know, they made their free throws and Villanova squeaks it out by four. But uh, yeah, yeah that, it's just a very evenly played game in the second half, especially. Tim mentioned the two clutch threes to come back against Nova by Scruggs gives him more confidence with him come tournament time. Just fell short with that final shot, which, yeah, we should probably talk about the final shot. I know some other people have asked about it. Mark said, still have a question on the Scruggs drive with 16 seconds left to tie the game. It would give Nova a chance to win in a tie game if he made it. And uh, Tom says, I agree. Why didn't they just go for the tie or the win? Why give them the ball back? Um, I, I don't – Is this must be like a new thing. I know there's some analytics out there where – some people want you to go for the three in these situations to just try to win it. And the idea there is, is the math that, you know, you make 50% of your twos, but that only gets you to overtime if everything goes right. And then you have a 50% chance to lose in overtime. So, you know, the, the 33% chance if you hit the three is still a better chance of winning the game at the end. The reality of that is though, that's just assuming these static numbers are actually true. Right. Like analytics don't work in an end of game basketball situation all that well, because it matters what type of shot you're getting. Who are you going? Who are you going to put the ball in their hands and say, go get us that shot? And how have they been playing in that game? What is the other team situation? In this instance, Villanova had already fouled two of their main players out. They only have a seven man rotation. So I'd feel pretty good about winning that game in overtime. Um, Yeah. The the idea that you should shoot a two with no time left makes zero sense to me at all, because if you're shooting the two for the tie, you want to at least have an opportunity to tip it in and, and, uh, and get that second chance or even foul them and extend the game. If you're going to shoot the three, then it makes a little sense to me that you just wait, hold it for one shot, and go for the win at the buzzer. But um, I talked to some other coaching friends about this after the game and said, hey, what's your philosophy in this situation? And almost every one of them said, I don't have a set philosophy. It totally is dependent on the situation. How Do, do I feel like I have one guy who has a, a clear mismatch who's going to cause problems for them and we can get them? a shot or our best shooter is hot, then yeah, I might go for the three in the last, the end of game situation. But um, in terms of the decision to go for two early in the shot clock, I didn't really have much of a problem with that at all. I think, you know, if you pulled a hundred coaches, probably 60 of them would do what Travis did and 40 of them would hold for, hold for a three pointer there. It might be even less than that. Now the issue with it is, Paul Scruggs really made a pretty bad read on this play, if we're being honest. I don't know exactly what he saw, but the play was designed to clear out the right side of the floor. It's something they've used a lot, a little false action to get going, get him driving downhill off the backside of one of his cutters so he has to step on his man. And then Jack Nungy, acting like he was posting up there on that right block, was really just a giant moving screen. He's sealing his man out so there's no help defender to come over and challenge Scruggs, and he has that whole right side of the block and extended to finish his shot off. Scruggs started to drive and then decided to cross back over to the middle of the floor and go right into the help defense that Jack had been sealing off. And the result was, you know, he gets a contested shot by Eric Dixon and can't finish it. I did think there was an opportunity for him to uh, drop it down to Nunji after Dixon stepped up on help defense, but he didn't see that either. So, you know, again, Paul played great in this game. I thought he was the major part of the comeback. He just wasn't able to execute on that final play. I didn't really have a problem with the play call. I thought it was a pretty good one. He just made a read that I don't think was quite the right one. And if it was, then he just wasn't able to to execute the play after he made that read. Yeah. And when I was standing there having a conversation with a couple of people standing around me about, okay, do you go for the tie? Do you go for the win? How do you handle this situation? My first thought, which I think clearly is what a lot of people were thinking is at the same time is you don't want Villanova to get the ball back to have a chance to win the game at the end of regulation. So why not take the, why not take the clock down to the classic situation of, okay, there's four or five seconds left. You take a three, you're at home, you take a three to win the game. If you don't make the three, maybe you're there for a putback, like you mentioned, and you can tie the game, send it to overtime, whatever it may be. I, I Travis in the, in the press conference after the game made it very clear that that was the team's philosophy. That's what they practice. That is what they were intending to do in that situation. The shot just didn't go in. Uh, so it, it was clear that that was not something where Paul just said, okay, I have an opening here and I'm going to take it, even though there's a lot of time left. Like they wanted to get that shot early and maybe extend the game a little bit if he didn't make it. And then it ended up not going in. And even if it had gone in, then it's a 62 62 game or whatever it would have been. It's a tie game and Villanova would have had 
you know, probably 14 seconds left to win the game. So I, I, I did think it was a little interesting to go for a two with 14 seconds left. That was I mean, the only thing. We understand that they were losing the game, right? Like if they yeah. don't score there, they lose. So I, I don't know. Like I, you want to give yourself as many opportunities to tie this game up. If you don't score there, you want to give yourself the extra time. And Mark says it's the 16 seconds issue. That's a lot of time left. I realized that, but they were down. It wasn't a tie game and they yeah. were like, we're going for the win they were going to tie, try to tie the game up. And if they didn't get it done, they wanted the 16 seconds because they wanted to have the opportunity to foul and extend the game for a couple more possessions if Villanova went up by four like they did. So, I, I mean, I, I guess there's there can be different philosophies here on, on what you want to do, but like the idea that this is just a, a stone-cold fact that you should hold for the last shot with 30 seconds left when you're trailing is... I, that's a new philosophy on me. I've never really seen much of that from other teams. <laughs> you usually try to tie the game up as soon as you can, and then you go from there. You try to get a stop on the other end and uh, and win it after that. So no, you know, you, Villanova is likely going to hold for one shot if you do tie the game up. I understand all of that, but you you got to trust your defense to get a stop. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because if it's 62-62 and you take that shot with 16 seconds left and it doesn't go in and then it turns into what it turned into – then it's a totally different scenario. So, uh, Mark said, I, I, Mark said X also had a timeout left. What's that mean? What's what would that have changed? So, I guess the idea there would have been that you're thinking you get the ball in, you don't like the read, and you call a timeout, but they clearly liked what they got, and then it just didn't get executed well. Yeah, that's how they, I would see that. 16 seconds, they had plenty of time. Like, there was it, I don't, I'm not sure where, where the timeout would have came in there. They had the call they liked. Um, Wait, waiting to take the last shot, a timeout wouldn't have been good there because the clock's already ran out. So I don't know where the, the extra timeout really comes into play there. Yeah. So Xavier then in the end, you know, with Villanova executing at the foul line, uh, Villanova goes on to win by four. Um, Xavier did outscore Villanova by seven in that second half. Xavier was down uh, by as many as 17 with 412 left in the first half. Uh, and came back to tie the game. Scruggs tied the game with a three with about three minutes left. Uh, and then Villanova really controlled it the rest of the way. Xavier did have that shot that we just spent all that time talking about to, to tie it. But um, to be down 17, and it wasn't even down 17, you know, real early on. It wasn't like it was 19 to two. It, you know, at the time when Villanova was leading by 17, it was 34 to 17. Like it, it was nearing halftime and Xavier closed it out and got the game back tied, but then just couldn't get over the hump. But I think the most disappointing thing is just to round off this Villanova game. I think the most disappointing thing from a team perspective is that you get it back, you tie the game. Everything is in your favor, really in that second half, statistically the way you're defending the, the stretch that I pointed out on Twitter, how long Villanova went. I don't know what the streak was. I'm trying to pull it up. It was six and uh, a half minutes that they went without scoring six and a half minutes without scoring. You don't get that much Rick against no. Villanova. No, it was, I mean, it was a good stretch by Xavier, but this is also a good time to remember, like it happens to other teams too, right? I mean, if a six and a half minute stretch without Xavier scoring at Villanova happens, everyone's ready to fire the coaching staff and it's, you can't have it. It's, it's unbelievable. It's the worst thing ever, but it happens to everyone, right? Like Villanova came here and did the same thing. They had, now, fortunately they had a 17 point lead for them, but um, they had a six and a half minute stretch where they didn't score. And it wasn't because Jay Wright doesn't know how to run an offense. It wasn't because their coaching staff is poor it's because it's basketball. And that's what happens sometimes. And Xavier happened to play really well and their players are on scholarship too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So the game's leading scorer, Colin Gillespie, uh, 21 points for Colin. And man, Rick, I he he just he just hit a it just seemed like dagger shot after dagger shot from a guy well, that th that was the thing. It was big shots that he hit because he was seven for 21. It really wasn't a good game for him offensively, but he hit yeah. big shots when they needed it. It was funny. I was reading – sometimes I read some national guys just to – writing about Xavier just to uh, just to kind of keep some perspective sometimes when you're so keyed in on one team and you kind of just want a more broad overview from somebody. And I was reading somebody that was writing a preview of this game and clearly hadn't watched much of Xavier and Villanova 
uh, in the last few years. And they were talking about Colin Gillespie and, and just how, you know, Xavier's going to want to key in on this guy. He seems like a pretty important player for Villanova. I was like, good Lord, buddy. Like Xavier's been trying to key in on this guy for five years. You, you don't think he's highlighted number one on that, on that scouting report. Like then to go out there and give you 21 and in, in his last game, um, well, I, I think it's his, it'll be his last game at Centos, right? And he's not. Can he come back for another year? No, I got. I, I hope not. If that if we're getting into that <laughs> I, much eligibility, like we need to re- rewrite the rule book. Well, look, I don't want to make any absolute statements at this point and then it's look tough. like an idiot. Because yeah. hey, it's tough figuring out how many years guys have left at this point. <laughs> pull a pull another year out of a hat somewhere, but uh, but yeah, Colin, yeah, I mean, he he was two for eleven from three and seven for twenty from the field overall, but. It just felt like every time Xavier like really needed a stop to get back and uh, you know get keep the crowd in it or whatever it might have been, it just felt like Colin was there, just like he's always been to hit that shot to kind of calm things down and quiet everybody uh, for Villanova. Yeah, the the uh, comment up on the screen right now from Turbo Triga. It seemed like the small lineup was a huge benefit versus Nova. They also re- rebounded better with the smaller lineup in. Um, Yeah, I thought that was a big part of this game and something that people have complained a lot about over the last couple of years under Travis Steele, and maybe rightfully so, that he's had a tendency to, regardless of what's going on in the game, who's the hot hand, what lineup is playing well together, to kind of go back to the guys that he quote-unquote trusts. You know, that was one of the big things with Jason Carter last year when he had those games where he's like 0 for 5 from 3 and is struggling to stop the opposing front court player. And it's like, well, we trust him in those situations. And it's like, oh, there's probably room to to also just leave him on the bench if he's not playing well and someone else is in that game. And last year they didn't have as many options a lot of times when that was the case. But this year they do. And so I thought that was good to see in the second half of this one when they found the lineup that was working and it was a smaller lineup. He didn't go back to saying, oh, we got to play Jack and Zach together on the court at the same time because those are two of our best players and we trust them. He stuck with the lineup that was rolling in the second half, and that got them back into the game. They tied it up at one point in those final minutes. They weren't able to get over the hump, but I thought that was a good sign. And and to Turbo Trigger's point, it was certainly uh, the, the small lineup worked well. That's <laughs> a uh, that's a great uh, username there, Turbo. Turbo Trigger. Turbo Trigger. Thank you, Turbo Trigger. Uh, all right. So uh, kind of individually, you, you touched on uh, Zach Fremantle there and, and Jack Nunji a little bit. Nunji finished with nine. Fremantle only had three, played 21 minutes. But the other thing about Fremantle was it seemed like even when, um, and you kind of just mentioned this, when Zach wasn't even playing his best against Villanova because he had a probably the game of the year. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this against Creighton, but we can talk about that in a minute. Probably his best game of the year against Creighton did not have a game to remember against Villanova, but Travis stuck with him and kept him in there and seemed like wanted him to ride out some of the issues that he's been having. And if it paid dividends with the Creighton game, then it paid off. And I, you know, I thought that Zach and Jack and, and the way those guys were combining, especially then on Saturday, maybe building off of a little bit of that from Wednesday, um, maybe that paid off. I, I don't really know how to interpret that or read that, but it was the most extended time really that we've seen out of Zach when he's really been kind of struggling at points too. Yeah. Let's, let's switch over to the Creighton game because I think that's a good way to to start off with that one where in the second half of this one, it was kind of the opposite for Travis Steele. He felt that the, the bigger lineup was working with both big men on the floor and he played both of them a lot in the second half together. And this was really Fremantle's best game of the season. Like you alluded to, there's some other games stat wise scoring numbers. You look at like the ball state game, it might stand out a little more to you, but this was the one where I thought overall handling guys on defense, just being more active in general. I mean, look at 11 rebounds. We haven't really seen him rebounding like the guy we had seen in in the last two years. And Travis Steele said after the game that he just challenged Zach to do two things, have a good attitude and play really hard. And, you know, the attitude stuff is what it is. That stuff Steele has to deal with. I don't really care about and I don't want to evaluate it. But the (laughs) playing really hard stuff has been an issue for Zach. He has not been tough. He has not been playing with great effort. And I thought in the Creighton game, he did a much better job with that. And, and, I mean, you can see it right there. The, The 13 points, 11 rebounds, 
tells you that he was a lot more active. Yeah, and all through this box score, Xavier comes back and rebounds, especially in the second half. And it was kind of a tale of two halves again after what you saw against Villanova, where Xavier had a bad first half and had a great second half, but ended up not winning the game. Creighton never really took advantage, it felt like, of what Xavier was giving them in the first half. I, If Creighton was a better basketball team, they could have been up by a whole lot more than five points at halftime, given the way that first half played out. Because Xavier was turning the ball over, they were sloppy, they were not playing very well. Uh, Xavier had, I, I'm trying to split up the box score here by the half, uh, in the first half, there were, uh, well, I, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Xavier didn't play as poorly as it seemed like they did. But Creighton well, had 13 turnovers to Xavier's six. But it just, boy, it just did not feel like it was peak Xavier in that first half just from the eye test. Well, it's kind of what we talked about in the Nova game. They struggled to finish off shots around the rim again. And a lot of that had to do with Ryan Kalkbrenner. He had three blocks within the first 90 seconds of this game, including that one where he punched Jerome Hunter's dunk attempt right out of the air there on the first possession. So I think he had an impact on Xavier's finishing around the basket because they got a little hesitant, started maybe rushing some shots or weren't being too worried about where he was. Um, and, and the other, his backup Faisal or Faisal, however you say it, he had a nice block too in there early. So I think Xavier was worried a little bit too much about the shot blockers in the first half and that impacted them. But that was the reason that they weren't able to actually take advantage of how poorly Creighton played in the first half. Like Xavier didn't play their best, but most of it was just missing shots around the basket and and not shooting all that well in general. Creighton was the team that threw the ball all over the place in the first half. And Xavier really should have had the lead had they not been so poor on, on the offensive end. Yeah. Xavier, Boy, that first half, it was, let's see here, let's break it down. Xavier, 11 for 30 in the first half, and Creighton was 15 of 25. And it just, to me, it just felt like, yeah, it was just slop. It it couldn't finish. They couldn't hit a shot to save their life. It was just back and forth, and there wasn't a lot of flow. And uh, Creighton had twice as many rebounds as Xavier did. And it was just, it, it just didn't feel like Xavier was in the game. I don't want to say not in the game mentally. They were clearly in the game on the scoreboard. It was only a five point lead at halftime for Creighton, but it just didn't ever feel like there was a ton of flow for Xavier until then they finally got it rolling in the second half. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much what it came down to, just making more shots in the second half and, and stepping up defensively. The one thing that I thought the, the staff did a really good job of, and Steele gave a great explanation for this in the post game was in early in the game, their idea was they needed to draw Ryan Kalkbrenner, the shot blocker Creighton, away from the basket. So they did that by picking and popping with their big men, letting them play on the perimeter a little bit, look for some three-point shots and try to attack that way, and just try to keep Kalkbrenner as far away from the rim as they could. They also played the smaller lineup a little bit more in the first half, hoping to spread him and their other forward, Ryan Hawkins, out. When that didn't work in the second half, Xavier's staff basically said, okay, we're going to get more physical here. And we're going to play the two bigs together. And what we're going to do is we're going to have our guys, anytime we try to drive, if we've got a perimeter player looking to attack off the bounce, we're going to have our big man seal Ryan Kalkbrenner, basically try to post him up. And again, going back to kind of the play they tried to run at the end of the Villanova game for Paul Scruggs, use it as a giant moving screen. Your big man sealing that shot blocker, he can't get out to now block the shot. And so that's what they tried to do. And it didn't really work out all that much in terms of like, oh, yeah, Jack Nunge or Zach Fremantle just cleared Kalkbrenner out of the play and someone made a layup right past him. But what did happen is it kept Kalkbrenner more engaged. So if he's got to fight and battle you one-on-one in the post, right up until the moment a guy's driving and trying to get a shot off, it's hard for him to get over there and really aggressively react to that shot and challenge it. And the other thing that they did when they weren't trying to seal him is they had their big men playing underneath the basket. They called the dunker spot, essentially, where you play low on that baseline, you face your teammates as an offensive player, and you work from block to block, wherever is opposite of the ball. So the ball's on the right half of the floor, you'd swing over to the left block to be opposite for a drop-off, and vice versa. If they drive left, you swing over to – or they drive right, you swing over to the left side. So 
That's what they were trying to do. And I think physically it kept Ryan Kalkbrenner engaged, but mentally it also kept him worried about what was behind him. Where was the big man? Was he going to get a drop off for, for a dunk if, if Ryan Kalkbrenner got too aggressive to go challenge shots? And also offensive rebounding. It takes him out of the out of position for offensive rebound or defensive rebounds when he's challenging shots. And Xavier's big men being in position down there underneath the rim also played a role in that and was a factor too. So I thought that was a really good change up by the coaching staff to try to alleviate some of the shot blocking concerns. Would you say that was an adjustment, Rick? A hashtag adjustment, if you will. Yes, I think that was. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, the message board will uh, appreciate that one. Uh, so looking around the rest of the game, uh, Alex O'Connell finishes with 22, Nemhard with 18, Hawkins with 13. Also, one thing I just got to say, my guy, uh, and I'm, how, what are we doing here? Andronic Kalashvili. And and drama. everyone knows how to say the last part because we because we had Mamu Kashavili. Oh, that was what yeah. I was gonna say. Mamu's gone, and now we got him. So it's just uh, a, he's just a Andro. Swap. If, if it was Andro. just Mamu, it's just Andro. All right. Well, we 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 lost Mamu, and we picked one up. So the Big East is now even on Kalashvili's in in uh, in the Big East. But uh, around the rest of Creighton, uh, you know, I, I thought in the second half with the way the game turned in Xavier's favor, Colby Jones was a huge reason why Xavier was so successful in this game. And it was due in large part. I mean, he was the leading scorer. Xavier had six, was it five, six guys scoring double figures? Um, everybody that scored really consistently in this game scored in double figures. That doesn't include Nate Johnson and Dewan Odom, Nunji, Kunkel, Fremantle, Hunter, Jones, Scruggs, all had 10 or more. Uh, as you can see there on the screen, but it was Colby Jones who you and I have beaten it into the ground this season. When are we going to see Colby be more aggressive? When are we going to see Colby start to try and get to the rim? When are we going to see Colby try to understand that his role on this team might be to take more of those opportunities, take more of those shots. And he did it in this game and he finishes with a, a team high, a 16, an efficient 16 points on six of nine shooting, had a couple of assists. He almost has a double-double with nine rebounds. Fremantle did have a double-double, uh, but Colby Jones was the player of the game for Xavier on Saturday against Creighton. Yeah, I mean, he only actually takes nine shot attempts in this game, but I'm to the point where I'd almost say, like, anything under 10 shot attempts isn't enough for Colby Jones. And I know that's not really how he plays, and maybe he hasn't fully realized his, his talent level yet, but when you saw him get aggressive there in the second half of this game, and again, Creighton may be a really good matchup for him. Every other opponent might not be as good of a matchup as Creighton, but he is scary when he starts attacking like that, going one-on-one, -on -one, backing his man into the post, getting to the middle of the lane off two feet and either making a pivot move like he did the one time or using that little jump hook in the lane and using his athleticism. I'm not really sure how teams are going to account for him, especially we talked about this earlier in the year. You've got to think about Paul Scruggs, right? That's probably drawing one of your best perimeter defenders. You've got to worry about Nate Johnson running around on you and, and hitting three. So that's occupying one of your better defenders, you would think. Who exactly are you putting on Colby Jones? <laughs> you know, or, or if you decide to put someone better on Colby Jones, then you're leaving one of those other two guys with probably your third best perimeter defender. So that's Colby has to be more aggressive like he was in the second half of this game to help those other guys out too, take a little pressure off them. If he draws more defensive attention, it only becomes easier for Nate Johnson to get more looks. You know, he only had three shot attempts in this game, uh, two three-point attempts. He was one for two. That is something that if Colby continues to play more aggressively like this, that'll free him up more for Nate Johnson. You know, I mean, so I, I, it's just definitely something that we've talked about a lot this season. We knew it was going to be a process as he's only in a second year and he's a pretty unassuming kid who plays really unselfishly. And that, that's a great issue to have, to, to have a guy who's all about the team and super unselfish. But at this point for Xavier to be their best, I think it involves Colby being more aggressive on a more regular basis on offense. Yeah, that's a great way to say it because when you look at Nate Johnson having just three points in this game, he makes one three and Xavier wins this game by seven and everybody is able to get their shots as easily as they are. That speaks again to the depth of this team that we've talked about so much. 
But when Nate Johnson only has three points, DeWan Odom only has one point, and you can go out there and see six different players scoring double figures, and you have Colby Jones leading the way, maybe this is the type of game to show him the film to say, okay, here's what we've expected out of you. Here's what you can do against a Creighton team that a Creighton team that beats Villanova at home by 20 and loses at Villanova by 30. How often do you see a 50-point swing in college basketball? But this is a, a, a good Creighton team that goes out there and, and gives Xavier a run for their money, and Colby Jones is able to have this kind of a game in 31 minutes. Um, outside of Colby, we talked about Zach Fremantle, but 33 minutes for him. Nunji only played 22 uh, but Zach, Colby, this is the type of game, Rick, it feels like, I don't want to say it could be a turning point, but it really could be the type of, because a, a turning point game would mean that the season would be going the wrong way. The season is not going the wrong way. That's that's not what I'm saying. What I mean is for a guy like Colby or Zach, this is a turning point individually to say, hey, look, you guys are really starting to get your feet under you. Let's keep this going now into DePaul and Marquette, where you can really keep that momentum going forward. Yeah, just looking at those those minutes, you were talking about how they stacked up for the big men. Second half, Nunji and Fremantle played. Uh, Fremantle played 18 minutes. Nunji played 14 minutes, and and I think the 14 minutes that Nunji played, they were both on to get on the floor together pretty much that entire time. So again, just shows you how much Xavier stuck with that bigger lineup once they found what was working there late in the second half. And to your point about the double figure scores, to me, having six guys score in double figures in one game is so much more impressive of a stat than the one we keep hearing about how many different guys have led the team in scoring this year. You know, Colby Jones being their leading scorer in this game became the eighth different guy to lead the team in scoring. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that can also speak to what we've talked about with this team at times that who's their go-to guy. Do they truly have a go-to guy? Do they know who to go to when things get tough and a game's on the line? That That's what that stat tells me a little bit too. As, as good as it is to have multiple options, it also tells me, you don't really have a go-to guy, or you may not even know who it is right now. But when you have six guys in the same game scoring double figures, that's a team that's almost impossible to beat. You've talked about that a little bit on the message board, Rick, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this a little bit more. How important or not important is it to have a dude, a guy like Trayvon or JP? And I don't mean that to say, would you rather have a JP or not have a JP? I mean... When you're looking for a guy to make a play at the end of the game, to me, you're always you're always looking for one guy, right? Who's going to step up? Who can we count on to go get a bucket? We talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but now looking at your eighth different player to lead you in scoring, do you think that down the line, come the end of February, come Madison Square Garden, come the first round of the NCAA tournament, that that could be a help or a hindrance to this team to consistently have a different leading scorer. And I know that sounds dumb kind of to ask it like that, where you're saying, oh my goodness, you have eight different guys that can lead you in scoring. But I think it's a valid point to say, you have so many different options. Who are you going to specifically trust in one have to kind of a situation? Yeah, that last thing you said there is the real point. It's not about having eight different guys leading you in scoring is a bad thing in itself. But when you dive a little deeper into what that means about your team and the way it's made up, I think it does say some things about this Xavier team that kind of matches up with the eye test. And for instance, all we have to do is go to the end of the Villanova game that we were just breaking down for several minutes. I, I mean, I'm not against Paul Scruggs. Again, he had a great game. I think he's a really talented player. But do you feel great if he's your go-to guy and end of shot, you know, last shot moment type guy in every game? I don't know. You know, I mean, like, I don't know if he's yeah. had that type of season where he's a clear cut go to end of game score. And it's not always just about the who gets the last shot. Right. We're also talking about, hey, your team's on a four minute scoring drought. Who can go get you that bucket and get you going? Who can spark a little run here? Who can score six straight points the way Colby Jones did as you were coming back late in that Villanova game? And he helped tie it up and then continue to take the lead with that 17 to four run that you went on. Those are kind of what we're talking about here. It's not just a final shot situation, but because we have a great example with the Villanova game, it's like, you know, who who should get that final shot in the game? I bet if you pulled Xavier fans right now, 
you'd come up with three or four answers. I don't think everyone would exclusively say Paul Scruggs should be the guy taking the last shot. And so that's where I think it, be, it could become a problem for Xavier. Not that it's a, an issue that you have multiple options and multiple guys that are capable lead, of leading you in scoring, but you do have this situation where it's like, who is our guy? And the problem is, like Travis Steele loves to say, it's different guys on different nights. So you don't always know who the guy is going to be. Paul played well in the Villanova game, especially in the second half. So I think it made sense that he was the guy in that moment. But there's been other games where I wouldn't have given the ball late in the game and I would have tried to go to someone else. I think that's the challenge that this coaching staff faces anytime they're in a tight game or anytime things start to go south on them and the offense just isn't clicking. And that that's not a problem that can't be overcome. We've seen really good teams that are a collection of talents. I mean, if you go back to the Xavier team that made the run, the original Elite Eight Xavier team, it was the team that had just lost David West and they were kind of, finding themselves and doing it with a bunch of different guys. And I think they really thrived off of that. Now they had kind of some killers that they knew who to go to in in the right (laughs) moment, but it was still a collection of guys that were able to um, spur that team on and make plays on, on given night. So it's, it's not like it can't be done. It's not like you can't have big success with a team like Xavier's if you have enough talent. And I think the Xavier team does have enough talent, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out with that high-end talent and having that go-to guy, whether that ends up costing them long-term or not. And when you look at how Xavier's ended the games this year, the one time that Xavier really needed a shot at the end of the game, it was Nate Johnson back in November uh, in that game against Virginia Tech. I mean, he was the one that hit that game-winning shot. And, and uh, I, I think depending on the situation, like you said, you probably get several different answers depending on what kind of the situation, what it dictates, who's having a good night that night, all of those things that that might uh, go into it. And I think Nate for three, Paul for two. I'm sure we saw Paul maybe not make the best decision uh, against Villanova there late in the game, but certainly if you're or if you're looking for a guy to get you two points, somebody that's been around for five years is not, probably one of your better options. Yeah, that was Mark who posted that. He he would go with Nate for the three-pointer, Paul for the two-pointer in those end-of-game situations. I think that's what a lot of people would probably tell you is, is their option. But, I mean, you know, some people might want Colby Jones driving and attacking late in the game. I mean, especially with what we saw in the second half from him. But here's here's a comment we got to get to right here. I have no idea what the actual question is. I just saw the first few words, which is Captain Xavier's dad here. This is Captain Xavier's <laughs> dad, Bob Meyer. Uh, his son is just a maniac on social media. Bob wants to know, do you think Xavier's athletic enough, defensively savvy enough when Jack Nungy and Zach Freemel are on the floor together for extended minutes? So this is a good question, and it's one where these these back-to-back games kind of provide a good look at one game they weren't at all, right? I mean, against Villanova, they could not match up at all with that lineup. And in the second half against Creighton, it was what helped them come back and win the game. So – Uh, The answer is it's going to be matchup dependent for certain. Um, But also one thing I think we need to get away from a little bit, like we've gotten to this point because Zach has been so bad defensively the last year plus. And because we've seen a lot of ball screen actions hurt Xavier over the last year plus we we've gotten to the point where like every time the opponent scores off an action, it's unacceptable. And this guy's the worst and he needs to be benched and we can't guard anything. And it's like, you go back and watch the game. It's, you know, they only averaged 0.9 points on ball screens in that first half, but Creighton did. They're not killing Xavier on those. Just because they threw two lobs for dunks over the top of Zach and Jack doesn't mean that those guys are terrible defensively and they shouldn't be on the court. It's like the other players are on scholarship too, and they executed a couple of really good plays. In the second half, Xavier didn't really change up a whole lot of what they were doing against those ball screens, and they, they kept them under a half of a point per possession. 0.466 points per possession in the second half off ball screens. It wasn't a, a, a huge change of what they were doing. It was Ryan Nemhard not playing nearly as well as he did in the first half. In the first half, he was fantastic, and he threw two absolutely perfect lob passes over the top of Xavier's defense. One seeing the pass was impressive. The two putting it right on the money was impressive. In the second half, he didn't do that. And so some of it is is related to how well the other team is playing, too. I know that's not exactly Bob's question here, but it was a good kind of segue into that because I've seen a lot of people just losing their minds at the sight of Zach Fremantle getting beat at all. And it's like, well, he's not going to be perfect. You know, I mean, he's been bad for certain. But in this Creighton game, I thought he was actually pretty good. It was definitely the best defensively that we've seen him play. So 
to get back to the question here, Paul, you can follow up on this with your thoughts, but I, I think there's not a clear cut answer to whether or not they're athletic enough and defensively savvy enough to play them on the court together. It's going to be a game by game basis. And that's going to be the challenge for the coaching staff to sort out every night is they're going to have to figure out, can these guys play together against this opponent? But, and the other thing too, is it just dictates the, the other team's lineup on the court dictates what Xavier's going to put out on the court. If it's a bigger lineup where you're seeing a couple of post guys that you're going to need Zach and Jack to be down there in the post together, banging bodies, then you're going to need both of them out there on the floor together. If you're going with a smaller lineup, then maybe you need a smaller lineup for Xavier to go back and, and counteract that. So I, I think most of this and the easiest way to answer it is just letting the other team dictate that a little bit on, on what their game plan is and what they're going to throw out there and throw at you to try and do. But I think overall, I think Zach Fremantle has now been in the system for three years. Jack Nungy in his first year has clearly shown that he knows how to handle himself and how to perform well in this system. It's not like he's a freshman. He's been around division one basketball for a very long time. So as far as the IQ goes and as far as uh, the ability goes, you would like to think they would both be able to be on the court at the same time. But really it, it, what it boils down to in the end is what the uh, opponent is going to dictate by what kind of a lineup they're going to put out there in my mind, yeah. at least. I, I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where those two guys have been so good offensively and such a, a mismatch for opposing defenses to where you can dictate to the other team with them. Right. Like, you can't yeah. just go, well, you can't stop our two big guys together, so we're going to roll them out no matter what, and you're going to have to adjust to us. I think Xavier, for the most part, when it comes to playing those two guys together, are going to have to figure out if they can guard the other team more than anything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Rick, let's uh, let's segue here into this week. Xavier has two games this week. Uh, one game that Xavier pretty clearly should win, and then one game that uh, will probably be a little bit more of a test than what has shown at, at Marquette. Xavier, now, now I will say, this is not a total, I'm going to give the Demons some respect here. This is not a total write-off DePaul game like years past. I'm not saying that the Blue Demons are going to win the national championship this year. Do not misunderstand me. Rick, you've seen them play in person. in person. You were you you have seen the demons for oh, yeah. yourself. You have gotten the de full DePaul experience already this year. So before I say anything else, uh, I'll let you take the floor on what DePaul is this year and, and their athletic abilities, which I think are uh, I would say significantly improved from years past. Well, first and foremost, they're back, as as you know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm all in on DePaul being back, and I have been for a while. Yeah, no, they're back. I mean, that win over Seton Hall is impressive. That not you know put up 96 points against Seton Hall. That that definitely makes you take notice when you see that. So um, I think it's good for Xavier that they already got that game out of their system. You know, they they were on that uh, five game losing streak, and then they put a brilliant game together against Seton Hall. I would feel pretty good about that if I was Xavier in the sense that, well, at least that was going to happen at some point for them because they do have some talent. At least it didn't happen against us. And you hope they're not just getting hot right now. Um, Javon Freeman Liberty is clearly their best player. He does everything well. He can score at all three levels legitimately. We hear that term a lot, but not a lot of guys are actually good at scoring at all three levels. He can do that. He's a big athlete, strong. He rebounds around the rim. He finishes around the rim. He has a lot of mid-range stuff to his game, and then he can shoot the three, too. He's, he's pretty efficient. He can shoot off the dribble a little bit. So uh, he is a handful for anyone to guard. Um, and then his sidekick, David Jones, who's on the wing there, 6'6", pretty good athlete and, and does a little bit of everything well. He rebounds well, too. He can shoot the three a little bit. Those are kind of their two main guys. And then after that, I mean, the problem is they just don't have much depth at all. And it's kind of a, a crapshoot what they're going to get from the other guys from game to game. But the one guy who's been intriguing lately, and I think you have to keep an eye on, is uh, the, the kid Jalen Terry who transferred from Oregon. If you see this here on the box score, he scored 28 points against, uh, against Seton Hall in that win. And he was three of seven from beyond the arc. So uh, Jalen Terry, he had four threes against St. John's earlier in the season a, a couple weeks ago. He's a guy that would scare me a little bit. He's played at the high major level. He's a little bit of a spark plug. He's been turnover prone, 
uh, since he started playing for DePaul after he missed the first four games of the season. It's been a bit of a slow start for him, but he's definitely a guy that can change their offense a little bit when he's getting it going. The one thing I was going to say about that Seton Hall game is not only did they win, it ended up in the end being a a close game, 96 to 92, but they killed Seton Hall. Like it wasn't even close. It was, it was 76 to 62 with like six minutes left. I watched almost the whole game. It was 76 to 62 with like five or six minutes left. And Seton Hall went on a crazy run in about 30 seconds at the end of the game to bring it back within uh, like one possession. But it was never really a close game until the final 90 seconds when Seton Hall tried to pull off a miracle and it was just too little too late. Like This is a game, I think, to your overall point, that is spot on is that the, you snap a losing streak against Seton Hall and not against Xavier. And they've had a week off. They had their bye week this week. They didn't play over the weekend. So they're coming off of that Seton Hall win last Wednesday. Yeah. So they've had some time off. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out here. We, we, we got a question. I'll put it up on the screen here. Uh, John wants to know, is Coleman Lands healthy? I assume this is a joke. Like, we're talking about Jalen Coleman Lands from two years ago that transferred to Iowa State and now Kansas. Is that who we're talking about? Uh, and that's the, I mean, he played unless he's, un- yeah, he, unless he's misremembering Freeman Liberty, unless he's, unless John is, unless John is seriously concerned about Jalen <laughs> Coleman Lands, which he could be. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if this, like, I, I've interacted with John before. I assume this is a joke based off my previous interactions with him. I'm just not quite sure if there's something I'm missing here. Like, fill me in, John. What am I, what am I missing here? He is healthy. He is playing for Kansas, I believe. That's as much as I know about Jalen Coleman lands at this moment. Yeah. I mean, he's not hurt. He's, uh, he's healthy for Kansas. Maybe he's, I think John's just seriously concerned about a former demon. So we'll leave it. We could just leave it at that, I guess. Unless I John, uh, unless John wants to follow up, but I don't blame you, John. Uh, but uh, Freeman Liberty, I, I think to what you were just talking about, he's having a great season for uh, for the Demons, and and this is a team under first year head coach Tony Stubblefield that is really trying to to turn things around. I know we've been saying that now for how many head coaches is this finally going to be the time for DePaul when? You can recruit out of Chicago when you can finally make a name for yourself. I don't know. I, I It's way, 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 way too early to say anything like that. But you would think a Big East team, and this has been the theme forever with DePaul, a Big East team out of Chicago would be able to perform to a higher level than DePaul is. And maybe Stubblefield's the guy, but I don't know if we'll ever really see DePaul back in the way that we might seriously say it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know about – you have to land transfers in today's game. I mean, that's just part of it. You're going to have to land transfers. You're going to have to land impact guys. And he had to put together a new roster on short notice. So you give him the benefit of the doubt for now. But, like, this roster is just too eclectic, too many guys that have been to three schools. It, you're not <laughs> going to win with this group of guys consistently. You have to find some stability in your program by stacking some talent. And again – you can do it through the transfer portal. I'm not saying that won't work, but it can't be all one and done guys. You know, you got what you want to get is the guy who went somewhere, played at a high major in practice, and he knows what it's like to be in the program and then transferred after that first year. So he has a long runway left. You have a good three years with him, but he's already gotten through all of the crappy stage of transitioning into college basketball, learning what it's like to play defense at this level, learning what it's like to not take plays off. So those are the guys that you really want to find in the transfer portal. Those guys with two to three years left, those are kind of the golden ticket because once you've transferred once, you don't have that option to transfer without sitting again. So those guys are kind of locked in a little bit more now. Those are kind of the the real prized possessions in recruiting, I would say. But in addition to that, you obviously got to land some of your own talent from the high school ranks. And right now DePaul is just kind of living on a bunch of mercenaries and, 
as a result, they're not very good. And I don't think that's going to be a way that they can build their program. So like I said, it's not Stubblefield's fault necessarily. He had to put together a roster on short notice and completely reshape it. And that's kind of the way to do it. But going forward, he's going to have to find a way to stabilize this thing. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, But this DePaul game starts a stretch of games, Rick, where you have three out of your next four are away, but it's DePaul, Marquette, then Providence at home. Then Creighton, which has proven to be a, a troubled game in Omaha in, in the past. It seems like it's always a game where Xavier has some sort of a travel issue getting to Omaha, and it just becomes some sort of a bizarre trip. But DePaul, Marquette, Providence, Creighton, Butler, DePaul. These next six games are a chance to really stack some wins before Seton Hall, Connecticut, St. John's, then Connecticut again. Like these next six games, in my mind, are a serious opportunity to go six and zero and show the rest of the Big East, show the rest of of college basketball that hey, look, we can take care of business. Providence obviously having a great year, nothing to scoff at there. Creighton, as I just said, away is tough, but this is a really big opportunity for Xavier to build a seven game winning streak right now. Yeah, well, look, if they do that, then they're in control of this thing. Like, they have set themselves up, but barring a complete meltdown at the end of the season, they're in a really, really good spot if they reel off those wins. I don't think that's very probable at all. Before the season we were looking at it, we thought Marquette, Providence, Creighton, or at least two of the three were going to be down closer to where, like, Butler and DePaul are right now. That hasn't been the case. We've already seen Marquette in person. I thought that matchup was pretty good for Xavier, but Providence has been pretty good to start this year, and Creighton has been the biggest surprise. I think this is Greg McDermott's best coaching job to this point. If they had any depth at all, I think they'd be a really difficult team to to reckon with here in this conference. But they just lack depth. But their starting five are tough, and they they provide problems for you. So um, going to play at their place isn't going to be easy. Going to play at Marquette is not going to be easy, although. You know, that's before our next podcast. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I, I love the matchup for Dwan Odom there last game. I don't know that Marquette, Marquette has anyone for Dwan that can match up with him. I'd, I'd certainly look to ride that matchup as much as possible early in the game if I'm Xavier. Yeah, that last game, Xavier and Marquette back on December 18th. Uh, Dwan, that was the game where he had a career high 19 points and he did it on eight of eight from inside the arc. So, those Dewan's probably his best game of his college career. And you go out there and you go to Milwaukee and you try to take advantage of that again. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I didn't even think Xavier played particularly well in that first Marquette game and they won it pretty easily. So here's hoping for Xavier fans that that's just a good matchup for Xavier. And that game won't be too problematic here on Sunday. Um, But you're right after that. I mean, these aren't the best teams in your conference. They are better than we expected them to be that little stretch in the middle. But they're, you're, you're right. I mean, you're not playing Seton Hall. You're not playing UConn. You're not playing Villanova. So it's a big opportunity for Xavier to get on a little winning streak. And and I mean, here's the thing. You at least have to have a winning record during this stretch. If you play these next six games and you go four and two, let's say, I think you're in pretty, pretty good shape. Yeah, agreed. And again, it's avoiding the bad loss. It's avoiding the – Wednesday is not about winning for Xavier. It's about not losing. You know, yeah. like you, same and really same that, that Butler and DePaul game at home at the end of this, those are the two you can't lose. Having those two teams at home, those are the only two games that I would say those are games you gotta win. The other four before that, at DePaul, at Marquette, home against Providence, and at Creighton, those games are a little bit more you can see them going either way, I think. Yeah. And you can even see if you're watching this right now, what Ken Palm has him at. Marquette a one-point game, Creighton a two-point game. Butler has Butler has completely dropped. I think we knew coming into the year, and we we did enough Butler talk last week. But Butler and what they did, you know, the other day, like this is this is a team in Butler that is just completely kind of, I, I don't know, it, Rick. I mean, that like you said, I think it's a really good point that. Butler and DePaul are the two games in these next six that they're going to have to make sure they take care of. And there's no reason to believe Xavier can't do that. I don't think we're really suggesting that. I think it's more so just those are the ones you're going to have to take advantage of. But those are uh, those are a long enough way away. Those aren't until February. Uh, we still got four games here until the end of January, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday. 
Uh, so it's going to be a busy next couple of weeks for the Musketeers. Here's what screwed me up this season in the Big East. When the coaches picked Butler to be sixth in the conference, I knew Butler stunk. I was confident that they were bad, like a close to around 100 type team in Ken Palm. What I, what I didn't expect was for that group of t- the three teams underneath of them, uh, which was Providence, Creighton, and Marquette, I didn't expect those teams to be so much better than Butler. Like when they picked Butler sixth in the conference ahead of those three teams, it was like, oh, okay, everybody in the bottom half of this conference is going to be bad this year, and it will be really top-heavy. That hasn't been the case, though. Marquette, Providence, and Creighton have all overachieved and, and been better than I think most people expected, and certainly much better than Butler. So uh, that's that's where I really got screwed up in trying to handicap this conference before the season started. I blame it on the Yeah. <laughs> Blame it on the coaches. There you go. Yeah, I, I, if you look at uh, if you look at the way that Butler's play, I, they scored forty two points. They lose by forty at Villanova. They've lost three of their last four and five of their last set or four of their last six, and none of them have been even remotely close. Purdue, Seton Hall, Xavier, and Villanova. Those are four really good teams, but none of them have been even close. And Butler's really just completely fallen off. But Mark Miller asks. Will they reschedule the Georgetown game? I know a couple of people on the board have done the deep dive to figure out what the actual days are that are available to reschedule this game because there are some rules and regulations that you have to have to be able to reschedule a game this year. Like you can't play on two consecutive days. You can't play three games in a week. There there are just some scheduling rules for rescheduled games this year that you could look right now. uh, You could look at the rest of the schedule and know, okay, uh, February this day and February this day are the only days that Georgetown and Xavier both have open. I have not heard a single thing about this game getting rescheduled, and I haven't even heard any optimism that this will get rescheduled. Yeah. Rick, I, I don't I'm know pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's already out the window. I'm, I think they've said it's canceled. It's not going to be rescheduled. I okay. I don't think they're still working on this. I think it's it's done. And the other thing to keep in mind is that Xavier tried very hard and thought up until literally the last minute that they were going to get a non-conference game about two weeks ago. Uh, That was before the Tuesday before the Butler game. They thought up until minutes before the deadline that they were going to have a game on that Tuesday night. And then it literally just fell through. Um, So that kind of told me at the same time, Hey, look, if they're pushing so hard to get a game like that, then this Georgetown game probably isn't going to happen but it is inspiring at least to see that connecticut is going to come to Cintas, and uh that'll be a friday that'll be a fun one friday night february 11th that should be a good game yeah oh. uh I'm, I'm screwing up with the stream here sorry i couldn't click the right button um do we have any other questions any other topics you want to get to paul that's really everything that i had uh Topic-wise to talk about. No, I, th- I think we're good. The one thing I guess I should mention, uh, Rick, you weren't there on Saturday, but my guy Jack hit the half-court shot. Uh, first I wanted time to ask in- you about that, yeah. Yeah, so so we brought him out of the crowd, and uh, he – so he tells me immediately, he was like, yeah, you know, I played basketball in high school. Like, I, I feel pretty good. And whenever we pick those shots – I always say, like, please just find me somebody that's going to at least hit the rim or make it a respectable shot. And the last few games, look, you go out there, you're at midcourt, you're nervous, you know, whatever happens. Like, you could be you could be great, but you could be nervous. And you're shooting in front of a crowd. And you're not going to put the ball in. I mean, this kid steps out of the crowd. He steps up. And I was introducing him, and I said, hey, look, you know, Jack's played basketball in high school. He's going to put it on the line. And I turned around to, to say, hey, Cintas, let's, let's hear it for Jack. And he was already into his shooting motion. He just stepped up, flicked it right on. It was dead on because I was looking from behind it. And usually I, I try to get my phone out to uh, to record it, but just in case it goes in. And I he shot it so fast I didn't have my phone out. And what do you know, it went in and he wins 500 bucks. I mean, I felt like that got the Centaur Center going a little bit. And, and, oh, uh, the vibes. The, vibes the, second half. the vibes were high, Rick. You had, like I said, you had – as soon as any and he was a redhead, so like as as Cap X very adeptly Jack. Jack. All right. Ginger yeah. Jack. Ginger Jack. So, you know, as Cap X, you know, pointed out, like 
the ginger, the Bengals, like the vibes were just all over the place when that shot went in. Now it yep. took a little, it did take Xavier, a, you know, another 15 minutes of game time to get the message that the vibes were high, but they did eventually. And then turn things around and the crowd was into it. And it was, uh, yeah, it was great. It was the last time I remember I was in the crowd. Um, the last time that Xavier, that somebody made the half court shot, but I remember that shot. It was my, uh, I think it was my sophomore in 2017. The kid made the shot, but he was able to practice in the aux gym before he made the shot. And I'm not taking anything away from hitting the half court shot, but I do remember them saying they felt really good about picking him because they gave him like 15 minutes to warm up in the aux gym. My guy, my guy, a little, a little shady, to be honest. I don't know if that's kind of like ruining the integrity of the contest. Hey, as long as the shot goes in, man, if you're hitting a half court shot in front of 10,000 people, I, who has, I to don't pay, know. Who, who has to pay that money? It was like 500 bucks that he won, right? Who has well, to pay ProLink, that? ProLink staffing is the sponsor. So I'm okay. assuming okay. it's ProLink. And I'm assuming that uh, ProLink is the one that, that ponies does, up there. But does ProLink, but yeah, but, does ProLink know that you guys are sneaking people into the ox gym and giving them warm ups? You know, that that's it. Be- well, I think back then it was Penn Station because every uh-huh. all of us in the student section, we all got a free Penn Station sub. Because uh, that was, anyway, my point is we just pulled Jack straight off the street. He just right out of the crowd, boom, right onto the court. No practice, no warm-up, no nothing. Knocked it down. So uh, kudos to Jack. Kudos to the Cintas Center. It was a great time on Saturday. It was fun. Did you did you get the sense when you interacted with Jack that he listened to the podcast? Or you think like do you think he knows who you are? Uh, he might know who I am from hosting the games, but I have I, no, I couldn't not get that. A- I want I want to know if he knows who you are from this podcast. Do you think he knows? <laughs> Do you think he knows that you were going to talk about him on here afterwards? Uh, I'm going to probably lean no, but I, I don't want to speak for Jack if he's listening right now. All right. Well, next person that gets the shot or whatever has to do something with Paul during a game that does listen to the podcast. One, a shout out for the podcast during the during the contest would be good, but also join us on the next show if you make the shot. Like we we could have had Jack on here and asked him uh, about the vibe. We should, yeah, we could have. Ah, that's an oversight. It's an oversight on my part, yeah. To, to yeah. Jack. Uh, Tim says, update on recruiting. Uh, yes, Xavier is recruiting. Um, <laughs> we, we, I need you to be a little more specific there. We've been putting tons of stuff over there on, on musketeerreport.com. I've answered a bunch of questions over the last couple of days. They had a uh, 2023 visitor in for the Creighton game. Um, if you're looking for something specific, Tim, I can give you more on it. But otherwise, just ask me a question on the message board. We've had plenty of recruiting stuff going on the, the last week or so. And um, in terms of the, the point guard stuff, there's really been no movement on it. The stuff we've talked about the last two weeks and uh, Amari Abram and Desmond Claude and Judah Mintz and all those guys. Judah Mintz has scheduled a visit for later in the month, like we talked about. So that is on the books now. We have more of that on the message board at musketeerreport.com. All right, Rick. Well, uh, do you have anything else before we sign off for DePaul and Marquette and anything else the rest of the week? I think that's it. Uh, David says we have 19 on YouTube, so the odds aren't that great. Uh, yeah, I, I guess he's talking about people listening to this podcast. Uh, no, that's the point of it, David. We know nobody listens. Uh, we're just you know, <laughs> hoping randomly that someone gets selected out of the stands that happens to listen, and we go from there. So There we go. I appreciate it. All right. Well, uh, Rick, uh, this was fun to everybody listening live. Thanks for listening, and uh, if you're listening – to this, uh, have a great week to everybody listening to this later. I'm sure it'll be exciting. Bengals going down to Nashville. If you're going down, and maybe you're listening to this down in the car on the way uh, on the way down to Nashville this weekend. So safe travels to everybody doing that. And uh, go Bengals, go Muskies, and uh, we'll see you next week.